going to be focusing from verse 28 to 21 to 38, but I'm actually going to begin in verse 13 just to give some of the background again. So Acts 27, beginning in verse 13. Now, when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster struck down from the land, and when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Cauda, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. After hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Then, fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, they lowered the gear, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began to, the next day to jettison the cargo, and on the third day they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and no small tempest lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Men, you should have listened to me, and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. For this very night there stood before me an angel of God, the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, Do not be afraid, Paul, you must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island." When the fourteenth night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight the sailors suspected that they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found twenty fathoms. A little farther on they took a sounding again and found fifteen fathoms, and fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. And as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow, Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. As day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, today is the 14th day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship, and when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. Let's pray that prayer we pray. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Amen. In August of 1819, there was a whaling boat by the name of the Essex that sailed from Nantucket, Massachusetts, and it was captained by a man named George Pollard, Jr., a Nantucket native who was 28 years old, but already something of a seasoned sailor. Now, Nantucket is not only the home of many colorful and unfortunate limericks, but was once also a prominent hub for whaling, so that's what this ship was doing before that industry fell from favor. Whaling is a, a fascinating 
trade and one of the most dangerous. I had a short-lived obsession when I was in elementary school with the concept of whaling because all violent jobs arouse romantic notions in young boys. And every voyage that you went on whaling, it required being away for months, away from your folks and chasing whales all over the world. They went everywhere. And it was always dangerous. But this particular voyage of the Essex was a doozy. Uh, the Essex sailed with a 21-man crew, many of whom were not experienced sailors. They included Captain Pollard's 17-year-old cousin, Owen Coffin, who he had promised his Aunt Nancy he would keep an eye on. Uh, four days into the journey, they hit a storm, and because of the captain's mismanagement and because of the inexperience of the crew, the ship nearly flipped and they lost most of their small boats. Uh, captain Pollard thought we should go home. But his crew prevailed on him and said, no, let's go to the Azores over in, in the North Atlantic and we'll, we'll get repairs and supplies there. So they talked him out of it, and that's what they did. But things continued to get worse. Uh, some months later, after the year had changed, this is January now, they sailed around the, the southern tip of South America. They arrived in the Pacific. And later that year, in November, a very remarkable thing happened. While the captain and one of his mates were off chasing a whale in one of the small boats, the Essex was attacked by a whale. A sperm whale, 85 feet long, rammed the Essex, not once, but twice. So this was not an accidental collision, an actual legitimate attack. So they abandoned the ship. Everybody got into the three small boats because they were taking on water, and they had 60 days' worth of supplies, and the other boat came back and was surprised to find that this the whole thing had happened. And by their calculations, the closest islands were 1,200 miles away, and they thought that those islands were inhabited by cannibals. So the captain suggested, let's go to these other islands that are a little safer, but they're further away. But again, he was overruled by his own crew and his officers. They wanted to go south, in the hope of catching some winds and hopefully getting back to South America. Uh, they eventually found a small abandoned island. They, they ran around on it, couldn't find a ton of supplies. Three of the men decided, look, we're going to stay here. Uh, later they escaped. They were rescued. But the uh, remaining 18 men got back in the boats and tried again to find South America. And then sickness started to set in and men started dying. And that's when they themselves resorted to cannibalism. And when no more men were dying of natural causes and the food ran out again, they decided to draw lots on who to sacrifice. And the lots it was not an idea that Captain Pollard liked, but again, he was overruled by his own men. And the lot fell to his young cousin, who was shot and then consumed. Perhaps the most disturbing meal ever to have been eaten at sea. Only a handful of men made it back to Nantucket, Captain Pollard was one of them. He had to face his dear aunt and explain what happened. And yet he was given command of another boat, which a short while later, when he was in the Pacific, crashed near Hawaii. He survived, and he did make it back to Nantucket, but needless to say, he never served as a captain again. This dreadful little story became the inspiration for the Herman Melville classic, Moby Dick. He actually met and interviewed Pollard. Now, so the story kind of becomes famous on that account, not that that was much consolation to poor George Pollard. For the rest of his life, he was marked out as a Jonah. Not a Jonah like you, it's all right here, but, uh, you know. How many of you know what a Jonah is in sailing terms? All right, well, a couple of hands up here. The, the, the Murdochs know, um, but that's an unlucky sailor. 
someone you'd rather not have on your boat. A cursed man whose very presence brings misfortune to any boat that he's on. Now, I know what you're thinking. What kind of sick person tells a story like this? Your pastor, that's who. And I tell this story because I am a sadist. No, um, it's because it ties together several themes, I thought, in today's passage. It has misfortune at sea and a life-saving meal. And a strange twist on the Jonah theme. Uh, most of you know the, the story of Jonah. I, I actually love that book because I can relate to the main character. Uh, Jonah's incredible contempt for humanity is almost inspiring to my inner misanthrope. Jonah is known for surviving in the belly of the whale uh, and also for hating his mission field. But perhaps the bravest thing he ever did was admitting that he was the original Jonah. Right? Uh, it was while sailing these very waters of our story today that it became obvious to everyone that there was a supernatural power that was intent on sinking this ship. And Jonah had to go up there and confess that he was the reason everyone was in danger. And he insisted that they throw him overboard, and that saved the lives of the sailors, and it also saved their souls. And this made me think of Paul on this voyage, the similarities and the contrasts, Uh, Not because he's to blame for what has happened so far. I don't believe he is. It's not his incompetence or lack of leadership, as it was with George Pollard, right? Uh, Nor was it because of his sin, as it was with Jonah. However, I don't think these storms they've been dealing with, these seemingly fickle winds that have been blowing them all over the Mediterranean, right? I don't think they would have happened to just any boat. I don't think these storms affected any other vessel but this one. And the reason it's happening is because Paul is on board. You know, I've heard it said, and I may have said it up here before, that one of the the only thing that all of your dysfunctional relationships have in common is you, right? (laughs) We have seen Paul on two boats so far on this trip. Both have had a very rough trip with unexplained winds coming off of the cliffs and chasing them all over creation. And the one thing these voyages have in common is Paul. Which makes me think Paul is essentially like the Jonah here. Trouble follows him, just like it did on land. And that's been the standing accusation against Paul from the start, hasn't it? Rome doesn't officially think Paul has done anything wrong. They don't even really feel like he deserves to be on trial, and yet what they can't figure out is that everywhere he goes, there are riots and upheaval. Everywhere. They had to arrest him in Jerusalem for his own good, as you'll recall. Uh, They were going to tear him limb from limb, the crowds, and that wasn't the first time that the people of Jerusalem had tried to kill him. And his presence caused similar uprisings in Damascus and Lystra, and Pisidian Antioch, and Philippi, and Thessalonica, and Ephesus, and probably others I've forgotten. So why does trouble seem to chase this guy everywhere he goes? Now, I reread the beginning of that passage that we had already read last week, just to remind us all of how bad things had gotten on this ship at this point. Uh, Luke said in verse 16 that they had nearly lost the ship's boat, meaning that the smaller one that you would use to go ashore in. Uh, So verse 17, Luke says that they were trying to reinforce 
the, the underside of the ship, meaning they were probably taking on water, and that's what they were concerned about. Uh, then it says they lowered the gear, uh, which we're not really sure what that means. It could be the anchor. They could be referring to the sail. It's hard to say. Either way, whatever they were doing didn't stop them from being shoved all over the Mediterranean. And, and in verse 18, it says they had to dump the cargo to lighten the ship to avoid sinking. And then in verse 19, Luke tells us that they had to dump the ship's tackle. That's not fishing tackle, probably, for the record. This would mean all of their remaining tools, the stuff that you use to make repairs. This is an act of incredible desperation, which is why Luke makes a point of saying that they did it with their own hands. It's not that they lost tools when a wave swept over them or something. They did this as a conscious decision to somehow lighten the ship even by just a few pounds more in the vain hope that it might help them survive. I, I sometimes, you know, I've watched enough like survival kind of shows and things like that. You know, I sometimes think of what would happen if we had to suddenly take off and flee to the mountains on account of like a nuclear disaster or something. And naturally we would take the van and not the stupid red car. Um, but what would we take with us along with the wife and I guess most of the kids, right? Um, and maybe the dogs. Hmm, on the fence about that one. I would place a high priority on food and then camping equipment, and then weapons, and then tools, right? Because I can replace almost anything else, like my books, whatever, most of my supplies, my little treasures and knickknacks and everything else, whatever. That can all go. But if I'm going to survive in the wilderness, I will need a hammer, and I will probably need knives, and I will need shovels, and I will need an axe. I will need the basic tools of survival, and that's what these guys just threw overboard with their own hands, the fundamental tools. And the boat is still leaking. It's been dark for days. They're lost. And now a huge storm is coming. And at last, they say, Luke says, that hope was officially abandoned. All they have left is the ship. And she ain't in great shape. This would be a good time for a miracle. And Paul happens to have seen and even performed a few, right? Uh, or, like Jonah, he could open up and admit that uh, these storms might have something to do with me, gentlemen. But when Paul speaks up, he takes a bit of an unexpected direction with things. It takes chutzpah to say anything to the captain or to the Roman guards, right? But, and Paul did give his opinion a few days back when they were in Fair Havens, but that was before everything got real bad, right? And now he addresses not just the captain, but all the men on board, because they all voted for this thing, right? And Luke says he does this because everyone was also very hungry. And maybe now would not be the best time to interject with a see I told you so speech. But a normal guy wouldn't do that. But Paul's not a normal guy. Since they had been without food for a long time, Paul stood up among them and said, Man, you should have listened to me and not have set sail from Crete and incurred this injury and loss. Thanks. Again, not the recommended way to start a speech to a bunch of bedraggled, hungry men hunkered on the deck like wet cats wondering if they're going to live to see tomorrow. I do guess this gives some biblical cover for those of us who like to be smug. I mean, you know, you should have listened. It's a straight-up biblical comment. It's right here. It's in black and white, right in God's word. Uh, but we learned last week that, that being in the same boat with an unbelieving world doesn't mean panicking when they make bad decisions, and it doesn't mean starting a mutiny. 
Sometimes it means giving godly advice, even when they won't take it. And what I take from this verse is that it's apparently okay to remind people of that advice that you gave them, not to browbeat them, but to clarify the record and hopefully encourage them to listen this time. And in that spirit, Paul doesn't stop there. Verse 22 says, Yet now I urge you to take heart, for there will be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Well, that's a rather strange thing to set up. Because we just established that the ship is the only thing they have left. They have no cargo, they have no tools, no tackle, no idea where they are. This rickety, busted-up ship is pretty much all we have left. And Paul says, take heart, we're going to lose that too. (laughs) But somehow, beyond all logic, Paul says, we're not going to lose a single man in the process. Now... At this point, if I'm on this boat, I'm thinking Paul is either crazy or or else he's using some sort of weird euphemism for we're all going to die. Paul is evidently the only man on the boat who has any hope left. He's the only man who's not afraid, right? And he's not even a Navy man. That already makes him the resident weirdo. Where does this random hope come from? If he had stopped there, this would be a rather strange promise. But he makes clear, look, this hope is not entirely random. Why? Because I had a visitor last night. Verse 23. For this very night there stood before me an angel of the God to whom I belong and whom I worship. And he said, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand before Caesar. And behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. So take heart, men, for I have faith in God that it will be exactly as I have been told. But we must run aground on some island. Paul just announced that this ship, the one we're all together on, is doomed. But Paul says, here's the good news, guys. It's news I received last night, and I want you to notice a few things about what he says and also what the angel says. What can Paul possibly say that's going to encourage a boat full of doomed men and a ship that's going to sink? Twice in this section he says, take heart. But how can they possibly do that? Well, the first thing Paul says, he mentions that a messenger came from the God that he belongs to. Paul says he belongs to God. The messenger came from God who owns me. I think that's an interesting way to say it, and you'll often see the phrase used in Scripture, the God uh, 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 who so-and-so serves. You know, you'll see that kind of language. And Paul throws that in, too, right? And, but what he emphasizes first is this idea of ownership. Paul's security is rooted not in who he is or what he can do, but in the one that he belongs to. In a sense, it's almost like he's saying that he himself is human cargo. The crew just threw a lot of good cargo into the sea, and there are going to be many businessmen who are not going to be happy to hear that the cargo was lost. But Paul himself is cargo, and his owner is keeping a close eye on the shipment. So long before the invention of radio, God got in touch with Paul on the boat in the middle of nowhere. No living man knows where this boat is, including the men who are on it. But Paul's God knows exactly where to send the messenger. God alone knows where we are. And one of the most important things you can tell everyone in a boat is who you belong to, apparently. They need to know, they needed to know on this boat that Paul is bought and paid for 
And God cares about Paul. And he knows where to find Paul. And he speaks to Paul. And I think that that's true, in a sense, for us. I don't mean that he'll send angels to announce things. I think that's pretty rare. But brothers and sisters, we have the word of God. God speaks to us. And unbelievers, especially when they're desperate, want to know that. I I have often been amazed at how unbelievers, when they're suffering, and they're going through tumultuous times, will ask you what the Bible says about things. And I I think they do this to me sometimes because I'm a pastor, but they used to do it even before then. Uh, Unbelievers, when they come to the end of themselves, they want to know that God has something to say about it. And, beloved, we are in a position to say, yes, God does have something to say. We have the opportunity to open God's word and show them what it says. Hurting people are often the most willing to hear what God has to say. They want someone to come along and make sense of it all. And if you advertise that you belong to God, that makes you a magnet for the confused and the hurting. So we can learn a lot from how Paul even begins this speech. Uh, But hear also what the angel says. The angel says, don't be afraid, Paul. Now this is, of course, the standard angelic greeting that you find all over Scripture. But for once, I'm not sure the angel is the scariest thing in this scene. The storm is probably scarier even than the angel, but the angel says not to fear why, because he says you must stand before Caesar. So hear what the angel is saying here. He's only repeating what Jesus himself told Paul that night a couple years ago when he was in prison. All this angel is doing is simply repeating God's promises back to Paul. God's promises are not put in jeopardy by bad weather. Nothing has changed, Paul, and your ticket is still good. And again, this, I believe, is why we can point people to God's word when they're in deep trouble. Because when you look at God's word, it's full of promises. Not specific ones like the promise that Paul got that he's going to go to Caesar, but frankly, in a lot of ways, more important ones. If Jesus says, on this rock I will build my church, the gates of hell will not prevail against it. That's a promise. If he says, everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him shall have eternal life, and I'll raise him up on the last day, that's a promise. If his word says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, that is a promise. He says to the the prisoner next to him on the cross, that this day you will be with me in paradise. That was a promise. Those are wonderful promises for those who are willing to receive them. But if you don't receive those promises, what good are Jesus' promises? How fruitful is this for unbelievers? Jesus has promised Paul that he would survive and that he would get to Rome safely. What good is that to everyone else? What can the unbelievers on the boat do with Jesus' promise to Paul? How do they get in on that? The angelic message implies something else, that that Paul is kind of like the anti-Jonah. Jonah had to be thrown overboard to stop the storm, but Paul seems to be the only one with the guaranteed safe passage. If this vision is accurate, Paul is essentially the good luck charm. He could be their only ticket out of this mess, but only if they can latch on to him somehow. 
They need to get a share of Paul's hope. How do you do that? The question is, can Paul do anything to save the others? And if so, will he? I think it's an interesting question. Should Paul care what happens to the rest of the boat? He's got a ticket to ride. He don't care. Or do he? Other than Luke, I guess, and maybe Aristarchus, we're not sure if he's on this second boat. Why should Paul care about the fate of the rest? Look, they're a bunch of stubborn, arrogant pagans. The ship is sinking, and it's their fault. Why should he care? Now, I ask this at LVPC. I know we have a lot of post-mill folks here, a few closet theonomists as well. Uh, but this idea, I don't think it's even exclusive to that, that particular theological camp. I think Christians in general have a hard time figuring out how to relate to an unbelieving world. And I think many Christians see our duty as surviving in this world as best we can and counting the days until it all burns. Which is the Jonah approach to Nineveh, right? It's a tempting viewpoint, especially when we feel like the world is kicking us around. It's kind of exhausting to be mocked and slandered and not taken seriously. And honestly, it would be just as impressive if the ship sank, but God just kind of swooped in and took Paul and Luke and put them on a rock. And, you know, and then a boat came along and picked them up and they still insisted, no, we're going to Rome, baby. Like, you know, that would have been kind of cool. That would have been perfectly interesting and, and fine. But what does the angel say in verse 24? How does he end his message? He says, Behold, God has granted you all those who sail with you. Do you realize what that means? The lives on this boat have been granted to whom? To Paul. In other words, that's what he's been praying for as all the others. Because Paul already knows what Jesus promised him. And maybe things look bleak right now, but Paul has survived an awful lot of things in his career. So yes, the angel reminds Paul of the promise and lets him know, look, everything's going to be okay. But the real news is this, that because of Paul's prayers, God has promised to save everyone else for his sake. God hears your prayers for the unbelievers in the boat. Do we believe that? Maybe sometimes. We say prayers, George and I, just about every night with the kids. It's a lot of the same requests every night from the kids. Thankful for a good day and for good dinner and for good sleep and this kind of thing. And, and the requests beyond that inevitably revolve around believing friends who are going through hard times and that kind of thing mostly. And I'd say we expect God to answer prayer on behalf of his people, and so that's comfortable to do. But we pray, I think, less for the unbelievers, I would say, on the whole around us. And I think that's because we sort of suspect underneath it all that God is unlikely to change them. And I think we see unbelievers living their lives in resistance to God and assume it will always be so, and we kind of figure, well, they deserve whatever they get to an extent, and we figure God can change them. Do we expect it? Hmm. And perhaps we also assume that God is not likely to listen to us on the matter because what do we have to do with the unbelievers around us? 
But what this passage indicates is that apparently God is listening, and for people like Paul, who has been interceding for these men for weeks, even as they kept doing the wrong thing, God answers prayer. And maybe they're only getting what they deserve, but Paul can relate because it's like he told Agrippa. He himself spent years kicking against the ghosts, and now these guys have done the same thing. They could have taken the safe harbor and fair havens when it was offered them, and they chose the hard way, but Paul kept praying for them. It's an important biblical principle I think we often forget, seeking the good of the world around us. God sent Jonah to Nineveh. Jeremiah told God's people to pray for the very city that had abducted them. Daniel served the king of Babylon faithfully. Esther married a pagan king in order to save her people. Jesus paid his taxes on time. I don't think it's our role to be in a perpetual war with our neighbors. Our job is to pray and be patient. And that's what Paul is modeling for us here. Now, Paul has guaranteed on God's honor that everyone's going to live. All we have to do, he says, is crash somewhere. <laughs> says verse 26, but we must run aground on some island. Doesn't sound like a very promising plan, but take it or leave it. That's what Paul says. So they drift on, waiting to see what will happen. It says, uh, when the 14th night had come, as we were being driven across the Adriatic Sea, about midnight, the sailors suspected that we were nearing, they were nearing land, so they took a sounding and found 20 fathoms. A little farther on, they took a sounding again and found 15 fathoms. And fearing that we might run on the rocks, they let down four anchors from the stern and prayed for day to come. Now, I'd like to point out just to begin here that Luke says they're in the Adriatic Sea, which makes no geographic sense at all. I suspect he means they were driven, being driven past the Adriatic Sea, significantly further south. Either that or else they're even more lost than I thought they were. But they take some soundings and they realize that they're approaching land. They're about to crash near land, which is exactly what Paul said they need to do. And how do they respond? They dig in their heels, they drop four anchors, and start praying for daylight. God has promised them through Paul that it, they will survive if they simply run aground. Just do it. They will live if they face their fears and embrace the crash. But they would rather dig in and pray for daylight. They want to see the land before they'll trust this plan. Paul's God may have our back, but we'd like to see where we're going first. And it's at this point that some guys, in a last-ditch effort, they get the idea that maybe splitting up would be best. It says, as the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship and had lowered the ship's boat into the sea under pretense of laying out anchors from the bow. Basically, the crew of the ship, this is the sailors, the, the professionals, right? They try a head fake. The, the experienced mariners realize it would take a miracle to avoid crashing into these rocks, but if we get into the small boat, that doesn't go as deep, right? We'll get to this mysterious island. We can do so more easily. And maybe if we're feeling good and the weather calms down, we'll come back and rescue people in the morning. Uh, we're just going to tie some anchors here on the front here uh, because, yeah, that's a thing. But Paul has something to say about that idea, doesn't he? Paul said to the centurion and the soldiers, unless these men stay in the ship, you cannot be saved. Then the soldiers cut away the ropes of the ship's boat and let it go. 
Well, Paul makes an audacious claim here, and apparently the Romans are prepared to listen to Paul now. Paul's been praying for all these men, but at least these guys are won over by now. And it's an all-or-nothing arrangement, he says. God will save us, but we've got to stick together. And amazingly, the Roman troops take Paul at his word, and they don't go halfway either. They cut the boat loose. On the face of it, that's kind of insane. You're burning your insurance policy. But these soldiers have seen enough weird stuff to start thinking Paul is on to something. So Julius basically says, do whatever Paul says. It's an amazing change since they were in fair havens. And when the sun finally comes up, Paul speaks again. It says, as day was about to dawn, Paul urged them all to take some food, saying, Today is the fourteenth day that you have continued in suspense and without food, having taken nothing. Therefore, I urge you to take some food, for it will give you strength, for not a hair is to perish from the head of any of you. And when he had said these things, he took bread, and giving thanks to God in the presence of all, he broke it and began to eat. Then they all were encouraged and ate some food themselves. We were in all 276 persons in the ship. And when they had eaten enough, they lightened the ship, throwing out the wheat into the sea. This is an amazing scene. And I think it's my favorite in the journey so far. It's interesting, if you remember back to verse 21... A while back now, uh, Paul had spoken up, Luke says, because they had been without food for a long time. And it struck me on a second reading that Paul piped up precisely because everyone was hungry, but he didn't initially do anything about it. It's not until two weeks later that he tells them, hey, fellas, it's time to eat. So these guys are starving, all of them, for two weeks It kind of reminds me of that line in the Gordon Lightfoot song, The Wreck of the Edmund Fitzgerald. At one point, uh, the cook comes up and says, fellas, it's too rough to feed you. That's, of course, right before they all died. Um, Well, these guys have been living like this for weeks. They were already half-starved like two weeks ago, so Paul says, hey, guys, let's eat something. And he says this not because nothing matters anymore, but because he says you guys need your strength and precisely because you're all going to make it just fine. Today is the day of our salvation. Now what does that scene, this scene of Paul feeding them on the boat, what does it remind you of? It sounds exactly like Jesus in the upper room at the Last Supper. Now, Paul, unlike Jonah, doesn't sacrifice himself, and unlike George Pollard, he doesn't sacrifice some other guy. No, the sacrifice is already made, and it's free. You just need to receive it. Now, I think it would be a bridge too far to maybe say that communion is exactly what's happening here. I don't know that it's the sacrament. There's no wine involved, but the imagery is rather striking, isn't it? As in communion, this bread becomes a picture of Jesus. But, at the same time, Paul is assuring them that this is not the Last Supper. Precisely the opposite. And just to show how at peace he is, he eats first. You also kind of get the imagery of Psalm 23 in here. That God is preparing a table in the presence of their enemies, in the very shadow of death. 
And Paul's faith in that moment becomes an encouragement even to the unbelievers around him and they begin to share the meal with him. You know, they say the fastest way to a man's heart is through his stomach. That may very well be. But it's certainly true that a man who doesn't eat will die. And yet these guys had been too busy to eat for two weeks. Now, I've been too busy to eat on occasion. My waist wishes that it happened more often. But for 14 days, you don't forget to eat for that long. And the remarkable thing to me is that the food was there the whole time. The only reason they weren't eating was the stress and the strain of trying to save themselves. Is that not also a picture of our world today? The gospel sits there so simple, so free, and yet the world is all striving. And it gets to a point where resting and eating actually becomes an act of faith. The trick was not finding food. It was convincing them to eat what God had already provided. That's what Paul's task is. God had given them fair havens and they didn't want it, but now they're desperate enough, broken enough, to eat what's already in front of them. And this meal becomes an act of faith. And by the end, so confident have these men become that once breakfast is finished, they chuck the rest of the food into the sea. Now, I would argue that these men have changed. This meal is the sign that they have thrown in the towel and accepted God's power and his mercy, his offer of peace, and they have accepted his offer of peace on his terms, not theirs. And on the face of it, their lives are still in jeopardy, it appears to be, but the real danger has passed and they have stopped striving. These men have come to trust Paul, and more importantly, the God who owns him. Luke numbers them at 276 men, and they have all turned their eyes to the one that Paul serves. And they will live, and they will not even lose any hair in the process, says Paul. Now I'm going to hit the pause button here again. I'm going to leave these guys on a rickety ship, blown by the wind, with no lifeboat, no food, and rocks all around them. Uh, But something has changed on this ship. And that's because Paul is a very different kind of Jonah. The original Jonah had to be thrown overboard before the crew would believe and praise God. He was, after all, the worst evangelist ever. George Pollard murdered his cousin and served the most depressing meal ever eaten. He was the least lucky sailor in American history. But Paul, Paul had spent weeks praying for the whole boat, especially the unbelievers, And he has evangelized, he has given godly counsel, and he has patiently waited. He's at the center of the storm, but he's not phased by it. And Paul offers these guys bread from the hand of God. Not a meal offered in desperation like George Pollard, but a meal eaten with peace and thanksgiving. He says grace right there in front of everyone, blessing the food for all of them. And it becomes a picture of the Christ that he's been telling them about since they left Myra. And I think that many tough, tattoo-covered sailors ate this meal in tears because God had finally broken them and Paul had thrown them the only lifeline that mattered. 
Brothers and sisters, let this be the model for how we serve the unbelievers around us. They need hope. They need the bread of life. Let's point them to Jesus, the Jesus that's right in front of them. And if you're among those who are still striving and still trying to save yourself, the lesson is obvious. Let go. Stop fighting. Stop striving and eat the bread that's in front of you. Cling to Jesus and he will preserve you through the storm. Let's pray. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we do thank you for your word. We thank you for this book of Acts. We thank you for this chapter, Lord, that reads like an adventure story with the most unlikely of events and the strangest twists and turns. No grand miracle has even happened yet. Everything seems to still be going wrong, and yet hope has been restored, Lord. Hope because as Paul clings to Christ, Lord, those around him learn that they want to cling to the same thing. Whatever he's got seems to be the only thing that's safe. Lord, I pray that that would be a model for us and how we live before the unbelievers around us, Lord, our neighbors, friends, co-workers, family. Lord, that we would not spend our lives trying to win arguments, Lord, but that we would be a model of people who cling to you for hope, Lord, and are so certain of your promises that it makes them burn with envy to wonder how they can cling to that too. Help us to be that faithful witness, Lord, that patient, faithful witness, Lord. Help us to love the lost around us and to pray for them. We ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever.